Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore the world of primary care by featuring discussions with a variety of healthcare providers. And now, the host of the show, Dr. Ross Tanik. Hey friends, welcome to this very special episode of the Primary Care Podcast. It is a special one because we flipped the script quite literally, and I had former guest of the show, with the most popular episode, I might add, Dr. Dave Gordon interview me about my life and experiences in medicine and medical education. And this was actually an idea that he came up with a few months back. He emailed me saying, hey, sometime after the match maybe or around graduation from med school, how about I interview you? And so we made it happen and recorded this interview just a few days before my graduation from the very prestigious Rocky Vista University College of Osteopathic Medicine. And now, as I record this intro, I am a doctor, a DO, which is pretty crazy. So I'm happy to be one and excited to get started as a family medicine resident at Swedish Medical Center, which is not too far from where I am right now broadcasting here in Denver, Colorado. This is actually also a a special episode for another reason, because it is the three-year anniversary of this podcast this month. The first episode came out in June 2019, and I've worked to put out an episode almost every month since, so I hope you guys all enjoy this labor of love of mine, and it's just a little gift to you that I hope to keep going throughout my time in residency, but of course, if I miss a month, please forgive me, but I will uh, later in the episode discuss my goals and hopes for the future of the show um, a little bit more in depth later on. That being said, I have taken on some sponsors lately, and I thank you all for supporting the folks that support this show. Uh, A fitting sponsor for this episode, so let's hear from our good friends at CBTGummies.com. CBT Gummies. Previously known as Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Gummies, the only gummy snack that when you eat it, you hear a voice in your head from a therapist of your choosing who performs and delivers cognitive behavioral therapy to help you become the best version of yourself. Try their extensive line of products, including Green Apple Grief Counseling, Commitment Issues Peach, Lemon Lime Codependency, obviously, Pineapple PTSD, Mystery Flavor Anxiety, And the depression ones are just simply blue with no discernible flavor at all. Made from only the finest ingredients with a secret recipe for success. Call to action time. So, satisfy your hunger and feed your scared inner child with CBT gummies. Now retailing for only $180 per session for no more than 8 sessions. And if you think that you'll get a discount by typing in the promo code PCP, you need to restructure and reframe your thinking. Go to cbtgummies.com. That's cbtgummies.com. 
Okay, so on this episode, Dave Gordon interviews me about my pre-med days, my time in medical school, the residency search process, and what the future holds. I always feel quite weird talking about myself, especially for so long, and I feel like even though this was quite a long episode, I still do have a million more things to say about all the things we talked about. But it was simultaneously nice to talk about myself in this way, and also definitely uncomfortable to talk about myself for so long. So thanks to Dr. Gordon for helping make this happen. You can find him at fourpillarsdenver.com. And congrats to him for creating some curriculum for the Community College of Denver in the cannabis science and also the cannabis business programs. He's got classes now that he created in endocannabinoid uh, physiology and cannabis pharmacology and also cannabis and public health, which is pretty awesome. All right, let's get to the episode. Everybody, please enjoy Dr. Dave Gordon interviewing the newly minted doctor, internationally acclaimed podcaster, and all around pretty nice guy, me, Ross Tannock. D.O. That's me. Okay. Enjoy. I grew up in Golden Valley, Minnesota, suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I think we talked about on, or you talked about on your episode, that I grew up Jewish family, very much um, promoted to be in medicine or reinforced um, that direction in life. And I was to some extent, but not really directly. I had a a grandfather who was in medicine. He was a, a dentist by training. Um, actually functioned more as like an oral pathologist, diseases of the head and neck. And he was pretty, uh, kind of a giant in that field throughout the last half of the 1900s. Um, globally, he was a kind of a geneticist, a pediatrician, a oral pathologist, um, a researcher, all those things. And so, um, and, and just kind of a larger than life character who was, just this uh, great ambassador to the medical sciences, I guess. Um, So that was very much a positive experience I had with that world. And uh, also my uh, mother's brother is a a hematologist as well. So there was that world around me, but I never in my wildest dreams thought of myself as either going to be a doctor, wanting to be a doctor, or even the doctor type. Um, So it was very much a path I got to several years even after college because I went to college 
University of Denver here in Denver and uh, studied psychology, wanted to be a therapist, and then went and worked at this kind of therapy camp um, for teenagers, kids with mental health issues, depression, anxiety, sometimes more intense stuff than that, but not the real intense stuff. Um, we didn't work with, you know, violent offenders and that sort of thing. Therapy camp. Um, and there I just got kind of uh, in touch with uh, the medical side of myself, I guess, by, you know, working with therapists, working with social workers, but also we had a, a program physician and nurse. And I just kind of found myself wanting to hang out with them more and wanting to be in their world a little bit more, ask them questions. I was always real nosy about how their world worked or what kinds of things or what are, what's this drug? What's this for? What, what would you do with this issue? Um, and then on top of that, I also got uh, trained as a wilderness first responder, um, which was super fun. It was like kind of first aid slash EMT junior for the wilderness, um, like backcountry stuff. And doing that, I realized I was pretty good at it and I liked it. So I went and became an EMT um, and then working as an EMT got kind of disillusioned with the world of emergency response. Just the fact that I thought it was going to be more interesting, more fun, more, um, I don't know, life-saving, uh, when it turns out there was a lot of just routine calls for people with chronic conditions and I would go and respond to them and treat them and kind of just get bummed out by these people who had these, you know, heart failure just progressing and progressing over the course of decades or whatever lung disease or whatever cancer. And um, there was zero, there was nothing I could do in terms of preventative medicine or holistic medicine is just, you know, what Dr. Uh, Seafeld talked about on the last episode is find it, fix it and leave it alone. Um, I think was her quote that she repeated a couple times of what is modern medicine. Yes, very much. And yeah. and this was part of a wilderness or emergency medicine setup where you were just, or more just emergency calls where you're kind of coming out for people's yeah. chronic conditions or just exacerbated generally. Right. So yeah, that was, that wasn't in the wilderness. I got, I got trained as a wilderness first responder and that was just the impetus to go to EMT school. Gotcha. Um, and so the, the therapy camp was kind of in the back country or, or in the wilderness, not really in the back country, but it was in a small town. Um, and but this was just in in Denver. This was working for American Medical Response here in in the city and and you know suburban area of Denver. Yeah. So just you were just seeing again people just doing poorly with chronic conditions, kind of one after the other. It sounds like. Yeah, and not to say that there wasn't more interesting acute cases of weird uh, infections or broken bones and stuff that was you know, fun to treat or or you know you got to do some interesting EMT emergency work with, but I think that just the, the bigger picture for me or the thing that just kept being on my mind really doing that job was um, the chronic conditions that are in general preventable and how little I could do to actually prevent them in that role. So I kind of 
took the plunge or, you know, it, it was actually a couple of years worth of convincing myself that I wanted to go back and be a doctor. Cause like I said, um, I wasn't the doctor type. I already kind of like, uh, pinned myself as that. Yeah. What do you mean by that? You know, I don't, I haven't thought about it a lot lately cause now I feel <laughs> a lot more like the doctor type. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I just, I was, af- I was afraid of the amount of reading and work um, in kind of the, just the academic world, um, how much that was, that would be. And it just seemed like kind of a, a, a job that we as a society put on this big pedestal. It seems, or at least at the time, I'm talking about the first 25 years of my life. It seemed like, oh, these are other people. These are a different type of person. You couldn't be a doctor if you weren't, like, blessed with all the intellect and the work ethic and and everything to go that route. Um, but I don't really feel like that anymore, and that's kind of one of my big takeaways from the, my whole journey is it's really not like that anybody can – can get into the field and, and do quite well. And you don't have to be, um, great at reading. You don't have to be, um, even, I wouldn't even say at this point that you need to have that much of a great work ethic. I think you can get by with, you know, all types of different people can succeed. Yeah. Interesting. I think, well, be interesting. Well, I think probably circle back to that as, as we kind of get through your journey and, and what you're seeing now that you're, well, a week away from officially being a doctor yeah. uh, as you approach graduation. And so it sounds like, you know, you started getting that, that taste, you know, Hey, there's, there's more I could do. I, I'm, this is pretty interesting stuff. I want to know more about these patients. I want to be able to do more. So it took you a couple of years to say, Hey, you know, maybe medical school and being a doctor is the right path. What, uh, how did you end up at Rocky Vista? Was it, uh, was this, you were in Denver and you wanted to pick from one of two schools in, in, in Colorado, or was it a, a big nationwide search? Um, a little bit of both. I mean, so just to rewind one step, um, I didn't, I wasn't a pre-med student and didn't ever take any of the classes, the biology, wow. the f- physics, chemistry, ochem, genetics, whatever else um, that needed to happen. So I had to go back and do those for another year and a half, basically, um, and do all of that pretty intensively, um, full-time student. And I was commuting from here to Boulder because I was doing that in a post-bac program at CU Boulder. Um, And while I was there, I learned about the concept of the DO, or maybe I'd heard about it a little bit previously. I know I remember you were saying that um, it took a while for you to um, even understand what a DO was. I think you said sometime in medical school. Yeah, I think it was actually fourth year <laughs> yeah. um, during during a visiting rotation where there was another uh, med student visiting who was a DO. I think it's the first time I ever heard the, the term. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I heard about it in that pre-med program, I think, and the vibe was, well, it's probably more f- easier to get into one friendlier towards your type of uh, ap- the type of applicant that I am or was meaning a little bit of an older applicant, maybe a career changer, um, someone with some life experience, someone who wanted to go into primary care. Um, these were kind of things that were valued 
more so in at least the DO application process. Um, so it was, you know, in my crosshairs, or at least, um, yeah, one of my top two schools, CU and Rocky Vista, because they're both local and I wouldn't have to move me and my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, you know, across the country. Although, you know, luckily for me, she said, you know, wherever we, I'll, I'll go with you wherever we need to go, but hopefully we can stay here. So, yeah. 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 Did you have any like specific mentors that stand out during this process or was it just you searching on your own or did you really connect with anybody that was already a DO maybe to learn more about that or, or, you know, anybody really help guide you? Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that because one of the mentors in my life then who I was, I volunteered with, um, I think during that, basically the entire time of that post back pre-med year and a half, um, was, uh, Dr. Morgan Campbell, who is a DO who graduated in the first graduating class at Rocky Vista. So, um, you know, it wasn't long from hearing about DO to understanding that it's an awesome thing to do or, you know, a career path to go down. Um, and so, you know, I volunteered with her like at once a week at her primary care clinic, um, kind of in between here at Denver and Boulder in Westminster. And so she was awesome and, you know, wrote me a letter of rec for med school in general. And then, uh, following in her footsteps um, kind of creepily because I went to Rocky Vista after she did. And then she also trained at Swedish for family medicine as well. So um, spoiler alert, that's where I am uh, uh, going to do my family med training and residency is at Swedish Medical Center here in uh, the Denver area. So nice. so clearly uh, yeah. an influence subtly yeah. and, and maybe more, more directly. So you know, you got to med school, um, which is which is no easy task, especially having to, you know, cram a lot of prereqs in in, in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Do you recall? It's four years ago now, but what what your mindset was entering school? You know, what kind of expectations you had? What what you thought for yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, as you started, you know, Rocky Vista. Yeah, um, I do remember a couple of important things. One, my big mindset during the pre-med post-back years, or year and a half, we'll just call them years, um, was that I, I was conf- or I wouldn't say I was confident. I would say I was optimistic is the word I'm looking for. But there was a big part of me that was totally terrified that this wasn't going to work out and that I was going to take all this money, time, effort, and, um, you know, time of my life and my late twenties or mid late twenties to, uh, go down this dead end path that I was never going to get into med school. That was the significant portion of my, uh, daily anxious feeling was, uh, Oh, this is kind of futile. Um, but then I don't know, we got, to the point where I got accepted into medical school. And kind of from that point, I felt like a little bit of a member of the club. I felt like I was like, Oh, okay. They wanted, somebody wanted me to go to med school here. Um, so I feel a little bit at ease with, with that. I think it'll work out now. Um, that's a big load off to start. Right. Yeah. Um, so it was a, a big load off. That was nice. But another, thing that I was kind of scared about was that big change from the post back 
um, years to med school, one important thing was just the style of studying and information to be, you know, regurgitated. Um, I would, we, so the postback program was a group of maybe 10 or so of us, 15. Um, I think it started as like 20 of us whittled down to 15 and then maybe 12 of which there was about six of us that would study all together every day in the library or in these specific spots on campus. Um, and it was such a group environment, group effort <laughs> to study and get each other through this because we were all in the same boat. We we're all the, you know, mid, late 20s or early 30s people who were similar mindset, similar types of people who, um, you know, got along and were great friends and studied well together, apparently. Um, but then we all kind of went our separate ways and suddenly I'm starting school with nobody I really know. And I was trying to force some study buddy relationships that didn't really work out. And I had to really learn how to study on my own, um, which was a big, a big change for me and kind of a, a big hump to get over. Cause I was like, how do I motivate myself to do it? How do I actually physically do it? I don't know how to study without talking out loud and asking somebody a question or getting asked a question by them by a friend of mine you know so that was actually really difficult in terms of my mindset right at the beginning of how is this all gonna how am I gonna do this you know yeah and did you end up reverting back to what you were used to in that postback program did you end up you know finding that more collaborative study or did you really, really change and you, yeah. you figured out how to do it yourself <laughs> yeah. and stick with it yeah um I, I like i said i was like forcing i tried to you know find people who i thought would be a good collaborative study buddy relationship but everyone's you know a little older has either family or um you know families of their own or whatever life um schedules were different we weren't all on the exact same life schedule like we were and and i think more than anything um the our styles of studying were totally different i remember a good friend of mine um one of my you know best friends in medical school we tried to do it once we weren't even on the same page at all um, of just trying to review for a test i think I, I don't remember exactly, but I remember being like, oh, no, this isn't going to work out either. I thought you would be the one. But um, that's OK, because I don't know, I, I figured it out and 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 uh, was able to study on my own. But it just kind of does sometimes add to the loneliness of the whole situation where you're like, well, this at least the studying part was a social experience for me. And now that's not even true. And so. Um, there is a little bit of, uh, you feel like a kind of an Island who just shows up and takes your tests and sees some recognizable faces sometimes and, and then goes back to your hole to study. Yeah. You know? I can imagine that. Yeah. That does add a sense of loneliness. It's different than the more, I guess, classical school experience where people are all kind of there, right. you know, as one group right. kind of simultaneously. Did you feel as you kind of got going and at least got comfortable studying, did you get to the point like, was that I'm here, I fit in, this, this is the right spot for me? Do you recall 
like that not being a problem anymore? Did you feel pretty comfortable, confident as you, you got into those, that first semester and moving forward those first two years? I think I did. I think I did. I don't really know exactly what or why. Um, not that the actual, you know, school academic portion wasn't difficult. Um, you know, there's a lot to learn and you just feel like, uh, um, like you're not doing it well, even if you are doing it well. Um, but you know, I think I, in general felt like I fit in, in some way or another. Yeah. And you know, those first two years, mostly preclinical, most, mostly classroom, I'm, I'm guessing, although I know schools have changed, but that's certainly the traditional mm -hmm. medical school model, obviously figuring out your study situation and, and how to make that work, um, was a priority you know, other, did other things kind of pop up those preclinical years? You mentioned the loneliness and just, you know, sometimes just showing up, doing your work and, and leaving being an issue. So that was obviously one. Were there other either frustrations those first two years or, or things that really, uh, you know, got you excited on the flip side of that, that, wow, this is awesome. I, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm here. I, I'm ready to keep moving. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And to go back to that, just uh, loneliness uh, and showing up, doing the work and then leaving thing. I, I will say that even within that story, that's all true. I, I was kind of pretty social and pretty active, you know, on campus and got involved with clubs and things to do and volunteering for this, that and, and other things, you know. So, you know, I'm sure I probably wasn't even that far down the spectrum of the being a loner, um, you know, compared to some people who probably aren't as social, just naturally social or naturally involved, you know? Yeah. Um, but, I think it's a huge point yeah. just to cut you off for a sec for yeah. people listening is you have to have that little proactive approach, even if you're not necessarily the most social, just, yeah, joining that one club or just doing something where you're now in contact with somebody else uh, on somewhat of a regular basis is a, is a, is a pretty big step. And I would say it, it, it each point in training. So I, I think, you know, a lot of people going into medicine, there's a range of personalities, but I'd say there's, there's probably a lot of so, somewhat solitary, you know, studious things of that nature that aren't necessarily always the most outgoing and social. So it sounds like you kind of recognize, hey, there's some things I need to do to to be active and and you know learn from other people, interact with other people. So mm -hmm. I thought that was a pretty positive yeah. aspect of things. Yeah. And, well, to be honest, I don't even know if it was me actively deciding that more as just um, you know my nature or just the. <laughs> unconscious yeah. uh behaviors that we go go through you know i think it was more of that of just this is just me being me rather than me saying identifying something that i need to be doing differently and then doing it yeah okay what um what do you recall those first couple of years really exciting you uh, you know, and or if you recall, I mean, it's a lot of class time, not always the most exciting. Mm -hmm. But was there things that you were doing those first couple of years that really, you know, caught your eye or, or really got you excited? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because yeah, a lot of it's boring stuff, you just have to memorize. And this nerve goes to this muscle. 
and you know whatever yes. <laughs> other other fond, mil- me- fond memories right million things you need to memorize that you know you're probably not going to be using on a daily basis but it's good to base you know have be the the, the foundation or base your knowledge off of going forward for sure it's i think most of that stuff is important foundational preclinical science stuff to know but and while you're doing it it's a drag because you're like I wish I could be learning the important stuff that was applicable to, you know, actually being a primary care physician or actually being whatever you're going to be, an anesthesiologist or whatever else. Um, But I think those uh, glimpses of applicability, if that's uh, the word I'm looking for, or just um, real world, uh, you know, situational applicability you learn this fact about the kidney or about heart muscles or something and it's pretty dry but then if you can find a way to apply it to something that you have seen maybe in your you know pre uh, you know pre-med school life as a emt and like oh okay i get how that would work with that heart failure patient i was just talking about or just thinking about or that uh Oh, that's how that diabetic emergency actually happens that I saw so much on the ambulance. Um, But I kind of understand it more. And then here's what kind of, you know, you would do about it, which we're few and far between or, you know, you get glimpses of that in the preclinical years because that's just not what it's for. It's not it's not clinical medicine. It's preclinical. Yeah. But those were the, the, the good, exciting times. That and, and the hands-on stuff, uh, I think, is the best. Um, I think that, um, you know, doing the, uh, the labs where we're practicing, listening to each other's hearts and lungs and bellies and looking in each other's ears. And, uh, you know, with DO school as opposed to MD school, you get more hands-on time with, uh, you know, doing OMT. Um, and so that is that was awesome because again that's more the social environment you're with people you're talking to them you're um you know touching patients so to speak but um and learning how to actually use the things that you're talking about or thinking about or learning about um so that i think that kind of plays into what i was just talking about it's the applicability thing and it was just you know the most fun and exciting part probably of uh, the first two years in terms of actually the curriculum, you know? Yeah, I bet. And uh, I suspect, although correct me if I'm wrong, as, as you were getting into third year, you were ready to get out of the classroom, so to speak, and, and start seeing and working with, with patients. And, and what, I mean, those clinical years, what, what were you kind of expecting there? You'd had some work with patients, obviously being an EMT, um, what kind of were those expectations as you went into those clinical years and did, were you on track with those or were you pretty surprised by what you saw? Yeah. Um, I think, I think I was, uh, actually kind of expecting to get worked harder. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, um, no, I know yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the resident or med school, those clinical years residency as well has a reputation for for beating people up right so i remember um talking to i think he is i forget the exact title of uh his position right now but uh 
I think it was episode three or four of this podcast. Talked to Stephen Miller. Dr. Miller is, I think, our dean of something uh, at Rocky Vista. And he was saying that, um, I, I just remember him saying like, oh, as a third year student, you get worked so hard, you know, and like that was a complete universal fact. And I was just prepared for that. And, you know, that was just one. I'm promoting my past episodes of the podcast right now is really what I'm trying to do. Uh, but that was just one thing that I uh, uh, remember as sticking out um, possibly because he was such a good storyteller. And he's telling it within the context of his own third year. But, uh, you know, sometimes it was, you know, hard work and difficult. And, and then sometimes it wasn't. So it was, you know, sometimes you got your hand held through a rotation and, we're more shadowing than actually being a useful um, entity or, you know, team yeah. player, <laughs> part of the team. Do you, uh, did you have these discussions with any of your classmates? Like, do you feel that your experience was pretty generalized? Like that's kind of what a lot of people thought or was everyone else walking around going, Oh my God, this is the hardest, you know, time of my life. I don't think I could keep this up. And you're going, well, it's, it's totally doable. Or it was, everybody kind of seemed, you know, mostly on the same page, like we're going to make it through this. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's another thing is kind of like going, talking about um, the different ways in which we're connected to other people and how many people we're, uh, you know, interacting with is that I feel like looking back on first and second year versus third and fourth year, the amount of time or just interaction I had with other Rocky Vista students was massive compared to then third and fourth year. First okay, and wow. second year was massive. Then I barely saw anybody, you know, comparatively. Uh, I'd run into some people on rotations or um, occasionally get together with people um, just, you know, purposefully, <laughs> but rarely, you know. Uh, so I didn't get to talk to that many people about their experience. Um, but it was funny because I was just... Uh, talking to a friend of mine who's going into emergency medicine um recently and she was telling me her uh you know, some just stories from this rotation and that rotation and i was like wow you got really good experience you know <laughs> like they put you to work uh on these rotations that i didn't do and um and uh great you know that's awesome it's good i still feel like i did get good third and fourth year experience even though i'm saying that sometimes it was more of a shadowing experience but for the most part it was uh got good at you know got to see the action and and participate um so i can't speak for everybody but i know that it's it's very rotation by rotation some are better for gaining good experience and some are pretty weak at that that aspect of of clinical education yeah, and I mean, going back to my experiences, very much who else is on your team? You know, some some interns, residents, attendings just want to get things done themselves so they can move on to the next thing. And you're just kind of a, a nuisance as a third-year student or even a fourth-year student. Mm-hmm. Others are very excited about the teaching and the team approach and want you involved in every possible thing they can get you involved with. So, yeah. you know, the team you're working with and and – you know, as you move into, into residency, ideally something to keep in mind as you're going to now have third and fourth year students hanging around you Mm -hmm. while you've got a list a mile long of things to do, but 
their their role is important too. For sure, yeah. I think about that sometimes. And in fact, the other day I was just thinking about, you know, I've been I've been kind of on uh, I've been uh, on vacation here for the last like several weeks or months even because fourth year just kind of ends once you get all your credits completed, and then I'm just you know sitting around like a retired man. Um, like, uh, you were, and I were just kind of talking about before the podcast is that sometimes you're like, wow. And my mind was just drifting to the future and picturing myself in the clinic that I'll be working in. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to have an MA. That's strange. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have, and then I thought I'm going to have, a you know, sub interns, uh, you know, fourth year acting internships, uh, with me, under me, uh, whatever the words are working with. And, uh, I want to be a little bit more prepared for that teaching experience than I am right now. So it was just kind of a, uh, a flash thought that I had that was uh, a little scary, but also exciting because I really do like the, the teaching aspect. Yeah. I just want to touch on COVID for a sec. Uh, COVID pretty much overlapped with uh, your clinical years uh, for the most part. Um, is there any kind of specific things that you think COVID really played a role into your clinical training that, that really changed it dramatically, uh, that, you, you know, from what you've talked to other people or what you've heard? Yeah. Um, you know, for me, not that much. Um, to, so COVID hit, you know, and shut, shut the world down and changed the world, um, early March, 2020. And that was right when we were ending our second year. Um, and so we actually had, <clears throat> excuse me, um, about a, a month or two, uh, I think about a month and a week of actual classes that we just kind of continued to do online, um, you know, Zoom lectures and whatnot, or just post the, the lecture from last year type thing, um, which was fine and, and easy transition. And I'm, I'm actually pretty surprised that the school was able to make that transition so quickly and at least for me pretty smoothly I don't know and maybe some other people had issues but um and then uh you know it, it definitely screwed up the scheduling and taking of the step one USMLE and uh Comlex board exams a lot of people including myself got one or both of those canceled um, and it was kind of a mess, um, especially in the first couple months when, you know, it was just wild. Looking back on it, it was so much more chaotic than it is now because um, we just didn't know what to expect. So that was a bummer of just not knowing if you were going to take this test that you were studying for weeks for, you know. Um, but ultimately, it didn't really alter my clinical years that much, you know, basically it we wore masks uh, instead of not wearing masks for everything. And that was the big change uh, for me. Cause I, you know, they, I, I thought it was, it was kind of rotation to rotation dependent on if, you know, the med students going to go into the COVID room or not. And for the most part, they said, you know, there's not that much actual interesting clinical learning here. So why do we need to expose one more person to COVID? So why don't you just wait in the hall and we'll be out in a second um, or a couple minutes, you know. So I, that happened 
a significant amount of times, but towards the end or towards, you know, toward getting towards the middle and end of fourth year, then I did go more and got to be more involved in COVID patients. Um, either way was fine with me. I wasn't like dying to go into the COVID room. Um, but I also wanted to be included and, and get to learn things that I need to learn and see the things that I'm going to want to see prior to being the person who has to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, either way, um, was kind of fine with me. Okay. Can you think of one or two patients or one or two interactions? Maybe it's not with a patient, maybe it's with a team member or something that really stand out over these last two years of clinical that either have changed you or, or you just know it's probably going to stick with you for a while. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one thing that definitely um, sticks with me is it was my first inpatient rotation, third year. You know, I had done some outpatient rotations. Um, and then this one was with, with residences at St. Joseph's Hospital uh, on internal med. And I really was a deer in the headlights, or I felt like it on just about every possible turn. Um, every second of the day, I felt like I just didn't know what to do. I felt like I had, you know, done okay for my first two years of med school, did okay on the board exams that I needed to, um, and then felt like I knew nothing. And because I did, I knew a bunch of facts, but I had no idea how to implement them and what to do. And then also presenting patients was like a complete disaster just about every time I did. I didn't know the format. I even when I did know the format, I couldn't stick to it. And I was all over the place. And it was uh, it was probably hilarious if I could go back and and just watch. Um, But then one attending, he was a new attending. I think he was his first year. um, So he was, you know, fresh, kind of pulled me aside and gave me a, he's like, I want to teach you how to do this and I'll teach you the why about it as well of each element of this. Um, and it really helps because he was basically saying like, this is a form of communication. It's not just, we're not just here to torture you. The idea of a med student presenting patients, even though we know that they all suck at it is not to, you know, just watch you squirm basically and, and watch someone be bad at something, but it's to, it's to learn this form of communication. Um, and then he, you know, broke it down with me and spent a good 30 minutes, 45 minutes, um, you know, giving me a tutorial on how he does and how other people might do it and how you could, uh, practice this and that and, you know, whatever else. So that, that really sticks with me because I have to remind myself that even, you know, to this day, I still struggle with presenting patients. It's a difficult thing to do because there's a lot of information and, um, especially a complex patient gets, it's easy to get off track and, and get into the weeds quickly. But if you think of it as what am I, I'm, this is a form of communication. I am trying to convey certain things. I'm trying to prove things wrong by my reasoning here or by my, the words I'm choosing to use and the order I'm choosing to present them and trying to make a case for, uh, whatever I'm trying to, you know, whatever I'm presenting, uh, then that really helped me. And it helped me not just in the actual 
performing of the presentations, but my just way of thinking about what we're doing here and what's the, the purpose of doing rounds. What's the purpose of knowing these things about these, about a patient, you know? Um, so I don't know. I think it, it helped me reframe, especially like kind of hospital based medicine for me and, uh, maybe put it in a, a new light. Yeah. I think it's huge. I, I it's been a long time since I've really been presenting patients back and forth for the most part, but I recall that in residency being huge. And like you said, it's a form of communication. It's not just to tell every ounce of information you've learned about the patient, which right. is tends to be quite unhelpful actually. Right. And I've always felt that if you're presenting well, ideally someone is reaching you know, the conclusions, they're expecting you to say something when you get to your assessment or your plan. If they've, if you've presented well, what you say in your assessment and plan shouldn't necessarily be that shocking to them. Right. Um, and I think that's huge. A lot of people get distracted by trying to analyze every piece of the history or the objective or the labs as they're presenting the information. And that tends to distract people away. If, if you, mm -hmm. based on what you're presenting, People are going, oh, I know he's thought this was important. So this is, you know, going in the back of my head. I'm, I'm expecting him to say this later uh -huh. in the plan because of what I heard. Right. And so uh, obviously becomes, you know, even more valuable next year as, as an intern. You're presenting pretty much everybody for the, you know, to yeah. the team. So uh, those skills will, be... will keep being important. <laughs> yeah, there will be no shortage of presentations to, <laughs> to practice and, and, you know, do well on or have room for improvement. Yeah. The, uh, we'll get into residency in a second and that search, but, but quickly did, did med school kind of change anything about what you thought your career path would be? Not really. Um, you know, I, I went in, um, I, t I talked about the, the days of the being an EMT and seeing, you know, this chronic illness and it, wanting to be on the preventive side of it, but I really wasn't picturing anything else except for being in family medicine you know I wasn't picturing and being in surgery or anesthesia or obstetrics or whatever else I could think of um, it was always to be kind of in the, the primary care spot for me and that really was um, reinforced the entire way through and by other people externally and then by myself internally as well and seemed right um and i wonder if there could be a like a, a study or something of the age of a med student of how well they stick to their you know pre-med school plan or of, in terms of what specialty they will pursue because i wonder if you know the people who got into it later in life with a little bit more life or work experience might have their idea already set and you know they've had the experience clinically or at least i did most people probably do have some sort of experience where they're like saw medicine and saw what they wanted to do and and for me it was i didn't just want to be a doctor you know that is a lot of people do they say i want to be a doctor well what kind i'm not sure i'm undeclared you know like you're going into college undeclared um but that wasn't how i you know, approached medical school, I wanted to be a specific type of doctor, or at least within 
you know, one, you know, slice of the pie is what I uh, was going for the entire time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's nice to have that reaffirmed. Although I know there's, you know, from colleagues I had, there were some people the first time they walked in and were part of a surgery, they was just, well, nope, that's what I'm doing for the rest of my life. And yeah. even though they never thought it, but like you said, I think when you already have kind of a mission in those life experiences, I, I suspect you're right that the, the older you are entering, or at least the more vision you have probably stay with it. Yeah. But, one, one story about that. I was in, uh, Oh, when was this probably middle of third year and I was on a surgery rotation, but it was kind of slow and I just got to tag along with this anesthesiologist and he was saying, Hey, what are you interested in? You know, he's a super talk, talkative guy. Uh, and was chatting me up big time about my life and his life. And he was, he was like, Oh yeah, uh, you're into family medicine. Oh yeah. I was like Mr. Rah Rah family medicine, uh, until middle of fourth year, like December of his fourth year. And this was kind of early nineties probably. So he, um, uh, I don't know exactly how the whole system worked in terms of when you would have to commit to what specialty you were applying to and, and all that. But that beside, he was saying, I was the president of the family medicine club. I was like, wait, I was the president of the family. Medicine. I was, you know, Mr. Cheerleader for family medicine and then got, did an anesthesia rotation midway through like December of his, of his uh, fourth year. And then, something snapped inside him and, and he had to pursue um, anesthesia, even though he had already, I think, been offered a spot. I don't know if that's how it worked back then, but he, he kind of at least alluded to the idea that he had a spot secured in family medicine at his dream program, but then, you know, was so compelled to pursue this other specialty that that he uh, he did, and he seemed to be very happy with that. So it's like, good on you, but I'm kind of scared that that's going to happen to me. So it, it didn't. I never got pulled in any other direction. But I did consider others. You know, I, I wasn't really bullheaded um, about family medicine being the only possible thing. I was open to the idea of either, you know, just other not too crazy, but just like internal medicine or, um, general surgery. I remember general surgery was my first rotation after taking my board exams and I did pretty well on boards and better than I thought. Now I got my score back and then I was like, well, maybe I could pursue these other harder, more difficult, uh, or more competitive, uh, specialties. Maybe I should, you know, think about that. Maybe I could be Mr. Mr. Surgeon guy. Um, and then, you know, Luckily, I don't really like that. <laughs> I didn't really like the OR. Uh, I like doing kind of surgical procedures in the clinic setting, but I really just didn't like the OR. So yeah, I was, you know, pleasantly, uh, I was happy with that. I well, guess. it sounds yeah. like you're on. You're, it sounds like you're on the path for you. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a key thing. I want to switch gears here to this podcast because it this is pretty unique. I, I don't know if there's any other medical students running a podcast during medical school. Um, but when, when did you get the idea? What, what brought this on? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's like the only one like this. Um, but, um, this, the idea started in the first year of med school, where as I was kind of becoming the, um, the president of the family medicine club, the outgoing president, um, who was a former guest of the show, uh, 
uh, Michael Clapadlo um, was on about a year ago, and he um, he Dr. Pitcher, who's a a um, a doctor at, at Rocky Vista, um, and myself kind of had the idea. Maybe they had even him and Dr. Pitcher had talked about it once before. Maybe I, th- I think I remember them kicking around that idea, but they didn't really have the infrastructure to do so, uh, to, to do a podcast. Um, or maybe they did, but not the same way that I'm thinking of it. And so it was just one idea of something to implement during the, the, you know, my time with the family medicine club. And so I thought, well, I have recording equipment. I have the recording software and the microphones and that's about all you need. So, um, I figured out how to, you know, actually record it and release it as a podcast. And there's a lot of different ways to do that, but ultimately I didn't take a whole lot of, uh, buying new equipment or anything like that. And so I just had to figure out like, what is the the plan for the show? What, what do I want the mission statement to be? Um, and it's kind of said, uh, in the intro, um, that my wife delivers, um, you know, kind of talking over the music saying, we just want to explore human stories in family medicine, find out what people are doing or uh, the world of primary care. What are people doing? That's interesting. Um, what do we need to know about it? Especially as people who are, you know, it's kind of targeted at the, the med student crowd, but I feel like a lot of other people will get something out of it. Um, you know, we have, listeners of all kinds of types of people, pre-meds, or even uh, doctors like yourself. Yeah, I'll speak to that. Uh, Obviously, I became aware of it, uh, I guess it's two years ago now, or a little more than two years ago, when I was a guest and kept listening to it after, and and it's been valuable to me as well. So yeah, I think certainly valuable to people in their medical training, but a lot to be gained by anyone who really is curious about how certainly primary care works and, and the medical industry as a whole. Obviously, as we talked, your, your kind of career path didn't change um, significantly during medical school. But are there things you think doing this podcast did change, at least in terms of how you think about medicine, how you maybe approach something in your clinical years, or, or even just you know how you're thinking about residency moving forward? Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is um, something that Carolyn Chen talked about on her episode. Um, and what, basically what she was saying, the reason I think about this is because you said during residency and how that might change your approach to residency or something like that, is uh, she said, you know, that we're all adult learners. And so we're all going to get the information or the skills uh, or training that we need or want for our practice. And so if you don't get what you need in residency or you don't get everything you could ever dream of uh, in terms of the training that you thought you would need for your career, that's okay because you're going to get it if you really want it. And whether that's like something like learning endoscopy even though you didn't get any opportunities to do that in residency or speaking a language or whatever it is, or, you know, something like alternative medicine or integrative uh, practices or something like that. Um, 
you know, she said, uh, Carolyn Chen said that. And then, you know, people like uh, uh, who you hooked me up with as a guest, uh, Dr. Dr. Grover, Grover. Fred Grover, um, he was great in like talking about how he had this kind of background of interest and and pursuing alternative and integrative medicine, but then kind of had this academic background, but still was able to find the things that he wanted to put into his practice because he had the opportunity to do that because because he made the opportunity to learn about ketamine learn about sound healing or sound therapy and, and these sort of things so you know that's kind of um a little bit of a weight off my back just just you know feeling uh or hearing that i should say is that you know you don't need to get every single possible thing in residency because you can you can get what you need yeah i think it's a great it's a great point. One is going to change, you know, what you learn For in sure. residency. A lot of it's going to change over time as, as science expands and we learn more. And it's going to be different, even though you're going into a family med residency. I suspect, I don't know how much it's changed, but the bulk of that time is still probably going to be in the hospital. Right. Um, less so than for maybe internal medicine or other residencies. But it's a lot of it's going to be the acute care, which is is not the average family practice day right. to day. Uh, so that that continual learning and and I think it's a huge point even for someone like myself who almost nothing I do in clinical practice now um, is something I kind of learned in residency as an integrative and functional medicine doc. But those those experiences are still extraordinarily valuable. Just interacting with patients. I mean, there's, you have to learn how to interact with patients on, on, on a whole lot of levels, obviously the giving them information and educating them and, and, you know, telling them what's wrong, but not everybody has a lifelong experience with, you know, interpersonal type uh, skills. So that's a lot to be gained in residency. Well, that's kind of unrelated to your, your field or your training or things of that nature. Right. Right. Yeah. So what what I hear you saying is there's all sorts of facts that may or may not be relevant to your career that you'll learn in residency and use every day in residency, but then maybe not during, you know, your career or skills, same thing, you'll use them a lot. And then maybe you won't need them in your future career. But it's the interacting with patients. It's the how do I deliver information? How do I set this person up for success? Those are the kind of just foundational, bigger picture questions that are the important things that basically everybody should and could be and will be taking um, from their training into their career. Yeah, it's it's huge. It's it's the kind of the, you know, a lot of people say with school, it's less about the facts, it's learning how to learn or mm-hmm. learning how to educate yourself in residency. The facts are obviously crucially important, but a lot of it is, yeah, learning how to think about patient care, learning how your approach, learning how to communicate. And and the other thing which I think is extraordinarily valuable that only MDs and, and DOs or people who are in, I guess I would say, the mainstream system is learning to recognize what a really sick person looks like. Uh, that's That's something that a lot of folks who don't spend time in the hospital don't ever really get that experience. Mm-hmm. And even if that's not going to be your day-to-day uh, as a physician, that's a pretty valuable skill to have. Yeah. 
Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I can. It's again, at least in primary care, more often than not, you're taking care of chronic issues that aren't in a severe exacerbation or a life-threatening situation. And again, with acute issues, rarely is someone in a life-threatening or limb-threatening situation when they're in your office. But those years of experience and residency during those three years, you've seen very sick person after very sick person. You're in the hospital the majority of the time. You're in the ICU. You're seeing people at their worst. And that kind of imprints, I would say. And so when you're in the office and, and you're seeing someone with, you know, cough, there's going to be something that clicks in your head going, this isn't like all those other people with a cough. This mm -hmm. is something worse. Yeah. This is something that I need to do that one extra step. Um, or, or something just seems off. And when you haven't seen that level of severity, I don't think it, it registers as much. You just kind of go with your default of, okay, well, what's my next step? But seeing those sick people for you know, three years when you're seeing a lot. I mean, you might see, you know, during one hospital rotation every fourth or fifth night when you're on call, you admit five to 15 really sick people. Right. And, and that, even if those aren't the patients that are your norm, you're going to remember what kind of resonates and what makes those patients seem worse and and know when that person needs to be seen in the hospital or in the ER or things like that. I think those are skills that only people who go through that hospital training right. tend to pick up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I believe that. Um, it's like uh, a lot of people are, uh, a lot of people who aren't in the know of the exact process of how to become an attending physician uh, are like, oh, so now you're a doctor, you get to, you know, do whatever. I'm like, no, nah, this is like the important part here is the next three years. <laughs> or no, I say, you know, uh, now I have to I start residency. I do my training in family medicine. Oh, what's that? Like six months, a year? Well, it's three years, but, you know, it's kind of the only crucial part. <laughs> That's, uh, it's kind of mind-blowing now, but, yeah. yeah. Are you going to try to continue this podcast during residency? I hope so. Yeah, that's the plan. Um, so, you know, in terms of uh, direction to take, and I realize that that's ambitious, uh, or it, it, at least I see how that sounds ambitious, but hopefully I'll be able to connect with, uh, you know, providers and all sorts of different uh, types of people who are in the medical field who have some sort of relation to primary care who can give some insight they don't have to be you know primary care docs um i've had all sorts of people physical therapists um you know uh, i'd like to get some other types of mental health experts on here uh and then also other specialists to kind of talk about how their their world relates to primary care um i'd like to kind of uh, start approaching it from a doctor's point of view, meaning my approach from my own point of view, because more and more I'll be acting like and feeling like and uh, being a physician. So I think that I will naturally, um, you know, kind of steer the podcast in that direction where I'm less approaching it from my, tell me about your human story, human interest story here. And what do you do? What kinds of things do you do? But that plus how 
how do we need to be thinking about uh, your specialty, you know, doctor cardiologist or doctor pulmonologist or whatever, you know. Um, and, you know, I don't know uh, in terms of the ambition of it all. I, I don't know if every episode has to be super long form. You know, I've experimented with uh, shorter episodes that, you know, could try to get 20, 30 minutes of just the, the quick bullet points uh, or you know, little practice updates or a quick story of a patient or something like that uh, or an M&M or something, um, you know, can be all sorts of things. Uh, but I, I still do want to do the podcast because I like doing the podcast. Yeah, well, good. I'm excited. I look forward to it. And yeah, I think that's a great mindset. A lot of people interact with primary care. Uh, certainly people in the hospital specialists and a lot of people have opinions on what would make for better primary care, better primary care physicians, like I said, specialists, physical therapists, case managers, social workers would be a really interesting one. Yeah. Um, since they're always trying to help people get back to their primary care. So <laughs> right. good stuff to come. Stay, stay yeah. tuned everybody. That's well, that, and you know, like there's just cause you get one cardiologist on the show and interview them doesn't mean the, another one's not going to have different opinions on things or just be doing different things within their specialty specialized within the specialty um you know i had a sports med doc on who was talking about kind of general sports medicine um and then i'm trying to get another one on who's going to talk more mostly about like head injuries concussion um that sort of thing um as well as other aspects of sports medicine but so you know maybe you could talk to um, you know, for, I don't know why cardiology is the only uh, specialty the I can really com- think of. It's the of most right common now. disease. So. But yeah, but talk to one about, um, you know, one aspect of, of medicine within their world and then talk to another about another, you know, whatever, uh, things come up for these different, uh, super specialized yeah. folks. Excellent. So we've touched on some things about residency. Obviously, you kind of went in with a a mindset of family medicine is what you wanted. Not much really kicked you off that path, some interest in other areas, but family medicine clearly has been where you wanted to be. Um, is Is there something about it that's just different say than internal medicine for you like what you know family as opposed to another primary care specialty only peds or only internal medicine mm-hmm. um you know kind of what's your elevator speech as to to why family medicine is is the right choice for you yeah um i think one i, I never really was interested in pediatrics i just wanted to i knew i wanted to work with adults which is interesting because um, when I was thinking about psychology or, you know, being a therapist as my profession, I was more focused on the teenage population. Um, and always, I don't know why that was just in my head that I wanted to be a therapist for teenagers. Um, and so, you know, I did work with that population for a couple of years. And I think that's probably the biggest reason why I didn't want to really entertain internal medicine too much is because one, I like the clinic setting more. I wanted to have more training in the clinic setting. Like you mentioned earlier, internal medicine in general is going to have more hospital, less clinic time just in the you know residency. Afterwards, you do whatever you want, right? But um, one thing I didn't really want to give up was the um, teenage mental health. 
you know, adolescent and mental and behavioral health. I just like working with that population. I like that, that population. And, um, I think that that's a great one to get started (laughs) with having a positive, uh, relationship with primary care. Um, you know, if you can get them while they're teenagers, you know, you can, you can get them hooked on, on (laughs) preventive medicine, or at least that's my, uh, my, my dream, you know? Um, so not that that'll be a huge aspect of my practice likely, but I like to, um, have it on the table. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a population that often gets lost. You know, you've got your pediatric schedule where people are in every year, every more than once a year and their vaccine schedule and it's just you're at the doctor regularly when you're birthed to yeah. age 12 or so and then all of a sudden it's well sports when you physical, have a problem yeah. sports physicals and and there's a role to be playing and, and sadly we're seeing a, a huge uptick in in both chronic disease but certainly chronic uh, emotional mental health issues yeah. amongst that population which does not appear to be uh, going to be ended by the time you finish residency, sadly. Right. So, yeah, that, uh, clear, clearly a role. And, and as you talk, think of future careers, you know, niches are, are important and doesn't mean right. that's the only thing you do, but it's, it's nice to have an area that you have a lot of interest in and, and especially when it comes to setting up a business or having a practice and right. things like that. Yeah, that, and, um, I will say this, there is something romantic about the idea of treating the whole family and there was something about me that was like, I like that idea. It's a great idea. But how much does that really occur where you got the kid and you also got the grandma and, you know, the middle-aged uh, person uh, all in your practice, treating them all maybe in the same visit type thing? How much does that really go on? Is that some sort of rural thing that will never happen in the city or even, you know, suburbia? But in my experience, just in the, my small experience with my rotations, that is not an uncommon thing where you got either the, you know, the 10-year-old or the two-month-old who's coming in with their mom and your mom, the mom's also a patient and maybe the grandpa as well. So, um you know, so I, I do like that. You know, just I don't know why. It just feels good. It feels like that's the relationship I want to have with patients is that they would bring their other people that are important in their lives to me as well. So yeah, that's excellent. What? Um, tell me about the search process. What? What was this residency search process like for you? Yeah. Um, so kind of like med school, I was focused on the location. Um, you know, within Colorado, location programs located within Colorado. Um, And, you know, I asked a lot of people, how did they do their search? And almost everybody says, you know, find the location first and then kind of narrow it down from there. Um, And I think people have said as much on this podcast that that's kind of how you do it or how they did it. And that was how I approached it as well. And, um, so that was, that was my highest priority was the 10 or so, um, family medicine residencies in Colorado. Um, one of the reasons of that is, you know, my wife is a licensed clinical social worker. Yes. I think that's <laughs> their title. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, she has a license in the state. And so not that she couldn't get a license in another state, but it was easier to stay here and not have to do that. And then, 
Um, you know, a lot of our support system and friends are here as well. She had a sister who lived here as well. Uh, my wife had a sister who lived here. So, you know, there was a lot of things um, making us want to stay here. Uh, on top of just that Colorado is a nice place to live and we know we like it versus <laughs> going somewhere else that you might not like. Um, and then kind of, you know, I think it's uh, a, a lot of people said it's kind of foolish to just focus on one area of the country and only apply to a small amount of um, programs. So you have to apply to a lot more than that. So pick some other places. Um, and for that, we kind of just mostly picked places that we'd want to live for the most part um, or places where we had family or sometimes that overlapped. Yeah. And you mentioned obviously doing rotations to get some insight there. You also had the, the luxury of hosting this podcast and getting some insight from medical students and even a residency director along, along the way during your interviews. Mm -hmm. Were there other tools or resources or guides that you needed or you, you were told were effective or things that were valuable for you during this process? Yeah. Um, you know, not a ton. I didn't like have, you know, a bunch of resources that I went to. I, I used Frida. I forget exactly what that stands for. Fellowship, residency, something, something, mm -hmm. search engine, whatever. The name, the name rings a bell. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, um, part of the website of the AMA's website, I believe. Um, and so they have a lot of good information on there. I'm not sure if it's up to date or not, you know, or how accurate it is, but it has all sorts of information, um, that is pretty good. But again, there's so much information that it's hard to, hard to really organize it all and have it mean much to you. It has you know, information, uh, everything from, you know, the call schedule to how much, you know, um, beeper call there is to, you know, if there's free parking on, in, on the campus of the hospital or that sort of thing to, um, you know, the salary and benefits and that sort of thing. Um, and, and a lot more information than that, but, um, you know, it's kind of sometimes too much information. So I tried to go as much by feel as possible rather than trusting some, maybe some outdated information, you know. Um, I know there's other websites like Residency Explorer, that sort of thing. Um, seems to be a good one that people used. It didn't really like work well for me. I, I don't remember exactly why, but I, I didn't jive with Residency Explorer as much. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was mostly that. And then the program's websites I thought were, um, you know, pretty good sources of information, um, about who the people are and, and what they do. And they usually have their curriculum, um, posted somewhere on there. Nice. So it sounds like obviously information is never a challenge in, in 2022, um, right. getting information. I mean, sometimes it can be a challenge, but there's, there's no shortage of information, I should say, right. especially compared to, you yeah. know, when I went through this process. So it sounds like just figuring out what you want to utilize. And some people care more about the specifics and the details. Other people, you said, you know, like you just kind of get a sense, gut instinct and feel, and does <laughs> this put me in the path that I'm going to want to be? Right. And, you know, I kind of, um, 
I mentioned earlier that I didn't really like feel like a doctor type for most of my life. And I felt like that was like, you had to be type A, you had to be super organized. You had to be a person who would be the type of person to put together a spreadsheet for this exact type of thing. And everybody talked about, oh, I, I put together an Excel spreadsheet of all the different residency programs I was thinking of applying to. And, you know, uh, all the different important pieces of information. And then I organized it by... Uh, importance of whatever element uh, category we're talking about and and then I ended up going on feel anyway uh, and you know scrapped my my spreadsheet and so I'm not Mr. Spreadsheet anyway and I don't really like doing that or thinking about that or thinking about things in that way so much um, especially when we're like thinking about ranking programs subjectively anyway uh i just didn't i I made a spreadsheet and i put one one program on there i was like this isn't i'm it didn't last long uh so somewhere out there i have an excel document that's probably just weighing my computer down in terms of taking up storage um but ultimately i just you know i got I, i was fortunate enough to be able to rotate at four of these different for sub internships for the programs for sub internships and one of them for just a core rotation. Um, and so, you know, I, I, and visited another one. So I felt uh, pretty well informed at least of my, my top choices and, and, you know, went on feel and said, and I'll wing it. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, you touched on a lot of things that were valuable for you, visiting places, doing rotations there, you know, looking through the websites, Frida, other things. Are there any anything else that you kind of would want to mention to medical students about the residency search process that really you felt helped you navigate it well or just made it, you know, a positive experience for you that, that we haven't touched on? Yeah, um, I guess one thing will be like the interview itself, um, I think is something that we haven't touched on at all. And to be honest, um, I don't know if I am the best to talk about the interview itself, because for me, I, I actually grouped a lot of my interviews or almost all of my interviews into a short amount of time where I got to do some kind of work from home a couple of weeks and then did interviews and, you know, for the COVID um, era, they're all via tele, tele, um, you know, video communication. Um, And so it was, uh, I I couldn't, I couldn't really separate them in my mind as well. But I think that that probably would be a good thing to have factor into your, your, um, you know, decision or your rank list is, the vibe that you get from the places, because there was a couple of places where I did get the intense vibe of, I don't belong here at all. They don't really, there's not a warmth or a warmth that I personally am feeling or the, I feel nothing, you know? And there were some places that I was like, wow, I feel so invited in, you know, and, and, uh, welcomed and I feel so good talking to these people and, you know, that can be you have to kind of trust your compass and on on that one because you have to have a well calibrated compass because uh some people maybe you know feel that indifferent uh feel that 
it's not always true for them where they, they don't they don't have that dialed in uh does that make sense yeah it makes sense yeah. and I, I think you you have to get that feel and and it's possible some places may just be better at marketing and, right. and you get there and it's like, well, that's not the vibe I got on my interview or my tour. Right. But on the flip side, folks who are consciously making an effort to present a warm environment and, and really seem interested in you. And um, I'd say more often than not, that's likely going to infuse into how they approach their, their, their team and things of that moving forward. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot can be said about that, but it's not everything also. And especially in the, you know, given the fact that you're not there in person, then it is that much harder to, you know, discern these feelings. <laughs> We're not used to seeing people's facial expressions and hearing their inflection over, over you know, FaceTime or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, visiting what, one, two, three, four different cities, I think, for, for residency interviews. And it's a different experience. You're traveling, you're by yourself. Well, at least I was by myself. I'd say more often than not, people are by themselves. And you get that sense of not just the two or three people that are interviewing you, you know, or is anyone smiling as they walk around the institution? Does, right. does, do people look frazzled? Is it dirty? Is it, you know, there's, there's just being on site that there is something to be gained there. It's a little more can be sanitized uh, on both ends when you're um, when you're doing everything virtually. Uh, although I expect that might continue irrespective of any pandemic, and there is a lot of accessibility and and uh, it's a lot of money to travel across the country multiple times to yeah. uh, to interview. And and I think you could choose to do it if you want to, but I think it. Personally, I think it makes it a little bit more accessible to people if they can do things virtually. Oh, yeah. It's a better way, I think. I think for sure. I mean, I don't mind uh, saving a couple thousand dollars traveling and time and just effort uh, traveling all over. That's especially during your fourth year while you are trying to do important rotations (laughs) and stuff like that. I think it's kind of silly. Yeah. One other thing about the search process I wanted to ask about, I think you asked maybe the residency director you interviewed, or maybe it was one of the students, is that balance between really kind of wanting to stand out and be like, this is who I am, Mm -hmm. and this is why I'm different, and this is why I should be at your program, versus not necessarily wanting to stand out too much or or to stand out where they're concerned that, you know, it's all going to be about you or something like that. Did you run into that at all during your Mm -hmm. interviews or, or... or thinking process at all? Not really. I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I kind of, um, I, I think I do like, I think the way you stand out is by doing the things that you want to do and being interested in the things you want to be interested in. Um, and so it's, I think what people asked me about in my interviews, um, were mostly things that I have done, and they wanted to hear me talk about it more. Um, the the question that I got the most was about this plaque that I have on my uh, on my desk right here. They all say, uh, "So tell me about the Beyonce Award," because uh, for those uh, who are listening, I at the end of my first year, I won uh, the Beyonce Award for Musician of the Year. 
uh, just our year, little year-end awards ceremony with a bunch of these types of awards, you know, musician of the year and whatever else. Uh, but to be honest, I kind of wish I didn't put it on there because it I felt like it was that was by far my most asked about thing. And I wish I actually I didn't ask about like other volunteer stuff nearly as much or, uh, you know, uh, I guess I wish I would have been able to talk about other actual more substantial things um but that kind of you know like in terms of uh academically or the podcast or uh volunteer efforts that i've done or stuff like that uh extracurricular stuff you know but i guess this was the cue to say we want to hear about your hobbies uh i guess <laughs> you know <laughs> so um Maybe uh, I think it's important to, while you're interviewing, this is kind of the how do you get them to like you or how do you get them to select you, which I know you're kind of so far been asking about how do you pick different programs and how do you select what programs right for you. But I think it's important to go into the interview being like, no matter what they ask me, here are five bullet points that I'm going to get in there somehow. And so, you know, maybe you'll put teamwork or leadership or volunteerism or the podcast or whatever and so i if they ask and they all they're asking about is your hobbies then you can get those things in there and say you know steer it to however you want to while still answering their question and giving them what they want i think that's a good way to approach it yeah that makes uh, sense and, and you have your 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 so this is an award from your classmates I think so. I guess, yeah. Yeah. Well, it worked. It. <laughs> it got you. It got you in. I, I, uh, I probably, thinking back, I don't think I would have highlighted the award I got from my classmates, which was the "I Love My Nucleus Accumbens" award. Uh. And for those of you not in medicine, I'm going to make you look that up, and rather than go into that in detail right now, but okay. uh, uh, probably wouldn't have where I would highlight it applying for residency with that. Um, nice. What excites you going into residency? Yeah, it's a very exciting time. Um, you know, uh, I think anytime you're learning new things, applying them, helping people, uh, doing uh, good things for your, your future, you know, you're learning the things that you need to be learning for your career. That's super exciting to me. Um, it's a little bit terrifying. Like we said, like, or, you know, I was talking about earlier that well, what if I don't get <laughs> what I need? It, even though I am resting easy on the words of uh, some former podcast guests and and people who have reinvented themselves even after you know a career in corporate medicine or whatever, uh, it still is a, a little bit um, you know the excitement is coupled with uh, a little bit of. Uh, terror yeah <laughs> for sure but but that's exciting i i want to um you know get more comfortable with all the things that you said you know I'm, i might feel like i have a a little bit of a found good foundation in communicating with patients and um you know delivering bad news and all this sort of stuff but um that sort of interpersonal communication thing where i'm in a different role than I have ever been in the past. I'm the doctor who's, you know, being a doctor to patients. And that's, that's super exciting. I'm pretty, I'm pretty pumped for, for that to 
keep improving at that because I'm sure there will be ups and downs. It's not going to be a, a, a linear path in terms of how I feel like I'm improving, but uh, overall, you know, it'll, it'll go up. Uh, I'm picturing a graph that uh, it's like the stock market. It zigzags, but it's going up. It definitely will go up and there'll be stretches of definitely exponential uh, growth. Yeah. You mentioned you've been reassured that, hey, you don't have to learn everything in residency that, that you need for your career. Are there things that, that worry or is not maybe the right term, but scare you or you saw that your residents or interns that you worked with on rotations, things that weren't your responsibility that are like, wow, I, I, I don't know if I can do that or I know I can do it, but it's going to be a big challenge for me. I mean, are there very specific things about residency that you've, you've seen that are going to be part of your role that you're, that you're concerned about? Hmm, that's a good question. The first thing that comes to mind is just like dealing with, you know, the butting heads with, um, other providers mm -hmm. and suddenly you have to deal with it. You can't just watch somebody else deal with it. Um, there was one, uh, story that comes to mind from up in Fort Collins. And it was, you know, just, uh, I was working with the family residents and we were on doing OB, I guess we were just cross cover. It was a night shift even. Um, and I don't know that I forget exactly what the whole situation was or what the issue was, but the OB doc was not happy with the family residents about, whatever it was, you know, it wasn't even performance based. It was just something else <laughs> and they had to get into it and, you know, uh, have this huge argument and then OB doc comes back around and, you know, restarts the argument and, and then they have to go deal with it. And, you know, it's something that I hate that sort of stuff. Um, where I should say it, it makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I try to, I think I naturally, lean away from those types of interactions. You know, some people go towards them. I walk away from them, but I'm going to have to at least deal with them and, and be, be, um, the person that, uh, you know, is the adult in the situation here. So, um, that I'm not really looking forward to, but, uh, again, it's that, you know, growth through discomfort type, uh, type philosophy that you know i i'm saying right now i'm excited for yeah that <laughs> makes sense and there'll be obviously interactions and, and disagreements and when it comes to patients you know the actual care of patients there's going to be disagreements right. as well and obviously you have a team that you can make sure you feel confident in what you're thinking but there's going to be budding heads between the primary team and specialists or between the right. medicine and the surgeons and totally. things like that. And, and, you know, those are times for learning to hear someone else's opinion, but also stand firm. If you really feel like, Hey, this is what I really think is the best for this individual. Yeah. Yeah. Can I go back and ask you a question of like, what should I be excited for? What would you expect somebody um, you know, I'm just about to start residency to be excited for, or what were you, you excited for? Uh, what is exciting? You know? Yeah, that's, I was, I definitely recall being excited with the responsibility part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, that was fearful as well, but the fear was pretty quick. 
Mm-hmm. Like first night of call was was a little rough. I, I think I actually remember crying in the stairwell briefly. It was like, oh my God, how am I going to do all this? I've got 12 patients I need to admit and I don't know what's going on with any of these people. Mm-hmm. But then you kind of follow the process, which is, again, I think is thinking back now, there's a lot of things I complain about the process in medicine and it's too one size fits all. And it's, you just do the same thing over and over again and you don't personalize it, personalize it as much. But when you're admitting a sick person, that process and that structure, I think is pretty valuable. And that's, again, to me, the difference between acute care medicine and and chronic disease. Acute care medicine does better when it's a very strict protocol-driven thing. And so once you get comfortable with that protocol, you you repeat it and you get to the answers you need to be. And then you just get to the point where, okay, this person's safe. We can talk about them later. And they're safe. That's that's your first goal is are they safe? And, And so the fear really within even a night or two or a week or two uh, kind of goes away because you got through it. You, you admitted 10 patients and they, they, they were, they were safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the responsibility was, it was an excitement. And then the, the ability to kind of, I guess it kind of falls into the responsibility, but just to really be part of that team where, where your voice was being heard a little bit more, that part was exciting, and and the the patient interactions. There's there's just a, I mean, you're limited in how many patients you're working with, how many you're seeing, and that ramps up significantly. And and in medicine, the more things you're exposed to, the more it it gives you insight. It, it helps you figure out what's going on because you've seen more things. And and so I think it's just that time. I wasn't. I was not worried about the time commitment or the being tired or that, that just, maybe that's retrospect now of 30 years or or 25 years, but I don't think it was like, I, I was just so excited to, to kind of be there at the time. And, and, you know, that hands on that, that kind of overrode a lot of that back then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I relate to that. I mean, not that I looking forward to being tired or, you know, work to the bone, but, uh, that's not the the part that scares me or, you know, that's not, uh, I am excited for the responsibility too. I kind of, I think I thrive in those situations. I think I actually don't thrive that well when somebody is holding my hand or, you know, uh, doing things for me. I think I'm much better off just in general when I, you know, given the keys and, and it's my time to figure out how to drive. Yeah. One question that just popped in my head, so I'll see if I can formulate it, but a little background, there is a lot of trauma people deal with as they're training to be a physician, residents, interns. Uh, there's in med school as well, but there's high rates, like in many professions, of mental health issues and emotional health issues. There's There's people that sadly have you know not made it through their training because dying by suicide or other things and so the medical system has tried to change things a little bit to make it a more positive environment for for residents um are are there things you witnessed where you you felt like if there was something traumatic you saw or teammates saw or you heard about that 
there was a structure to process that or or has that popped up at all this kind of concern about the the health and well-being of the actual residents did that come up in interviews or other students or just in this whole process has that popped into your head at all well yeah i think it's promoted a lot these days um i think that that was a pretty quick transition from you know the the hard and cold and malignant days of yore to uh or at least in in terms of the marketing like you mentioned um uh, look at how wellness uh focused we are and look at how you know resident self-care focused we are and and uh, and in my experience being with these different you know residency programs just during fourth year or third year that that was true that that people did care about each other in that way and there was a structure for it as well it wasn't just individuals being like hey do we want to vent about stuff or process uh, you know what happened uh during this code or whatever you know um but there was some formality to it as well in in a good way um built in and and i also realized that i while i was there i was a guest and and a you know not one of the people working in the trenches and so I do understand that, you know, my experience and my, what I saw, um, from different programs isn't everything. And that I do hear stories of, you know, horror stories of what I, you know, bad experiences working with other people or maybe not getting the attention that they need for, you know, when things happen badly. But I think that overall there is an incredible, uh, amount of support, um, in this day and age, or at least currently right now, um, for people going through the hardships of either daily life as a resident or the, the kind of the bigger picture life as a resident. And it seems like it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great to hear that, that it's at least talked. I mean, it's even talked about. That's the first step. Right. I certainly don't recall it ever being talked about, Yeah. you know, back in, in the late 90s early early 2000s that's wild because it is a big talking point now it's like the talk yeah well it's good and and hopefully it's hopefully it's more than just talking uh it seems like it is it seems like it's at least attempting to be getting backed up and i don't know i don't have anything to compare it to really but except for you know stories and just the vibe i get from talking to people from uh you know past decades um but it seems like it's in a better place now. That being said, I don't know if there's, I don't know what the statistics show in terms of uh, recidivism. Wait, no, recidivism? That's not the right word. Uh, what's the word when you drop out of something? I can't think of it. I think it starts with an A. Attrition. Oh, oh. Attrition. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> it's not recidivism. Uh, attrition or, you know, suicides or um, whatever else, you know, drug addiction. Uh, I I wish I did have like the year by year uh, data for that right now, but I don't. No, well, hopefully it's well, hopefully it's something you're not experiencing, or, you know, you and your colleagues. But like you said, there it there does seem to be a structure, and it's it does seem to be more forefront and and the health and well being. And I think personally, I mean, that just makes people better physicians. It, it if you can succeed, like I think I succeeded great in residency because I'm pretty able to just shut off emotion and not have that be part of it and get my work done and things of that. Um, so I think it made me very efficient, but 
I think a lot of those emotional type skills probably had to learn later as you get into practice and, and things of that nature. Right. And there is a time and a place when you're dealing with someone who needs stuff that second, you know, that's adrenaline and you have to put mm-hmm. emotion aside, but you have to have time to process that later. And it sounds like that time is being built into the training a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then to address that, like, I think I am also a, um, at my core and baseline, not very emotional, um, which has its benefits and probably its detriments. Um, meaning that, yeah, I can, I don't really have to deal with a lot of emotions and big swings of emotions. I'm pretty even like a, a golden retriever and I, I'm not really, at, uh, you wouldn't say I'm high risk for a mental health, uh, issues, um, you know, depression, et cetera, during residency. But also, I don't have had less practice with coping with things because I just don't go through that big range of emotion, you know, just in my life. So I think that people who do probably have that advantage if they've, you know, learned to deal with them in, in a positive way and and have coping mechanisms, then that's something you're going to need to develop anyway. So then, you know, good on you for already being in that, in that uh, position where you've, you know, dealt with harder emotional uh, times in your life or issues or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think awareness is key. Having time to be aware, obviously, as people are sick and in the hospital, their first priority is to have someone competent and taking care of them, doing the right thing. And, and that air of control and confidence in, in your, your healthcare team, I think is valuable, but also recognizing here and there that, Hey, this patient needs me to connect them with them emotionally right now. Totally. And, and, and so there's a, a, a piece of that as well. I want to, you obviously from, we've talked before, I know you have an interest in kind of the big picture and, and chronic disease and preventing it and, and and you've had multiple folks who fall into the category of integrative medicine, myself and, and several others on this podcast. And and I know you have, you know, some interest there. Do you have a sense of of how you're gonna balance those interests, which aren't generally, you know, discussed or, or brought into the the formal medical training? Um, or do you have a sense of how you're going to feel when you disagree with, with kind of the approach things are taking from kind of mainstream versus, you know, kind of an integrative approach. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on, on that, but I think that overall, I think if, you know, I or anybody else is trying to go a little uh, off the beaten path or off these, you know, super mainstream approach to things, then that will be, I, I think that, um, you know, having worked with the people that I'm going to be working with um, by doing a one month rotation, but at least I've been there and gotten their their sense and their vibe. I think that that would be, uh, you know, appreciated and um, accepted. But it definitely is still an academic environment that, you know, I think it'll I'll be forced to back up what I'm proposing if it's, you know, different than you know, what everybody else wants to do or what the attending is proposing, you know? So 
I think that'll be ultimately a good thing. It might be frustrating in the moment for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, backing it up with some sort of evidence or, um, or, or sound logic, or, you know, um, what are your thoughts on, on how that works in the residency setting or, or just, um, not even residency setting, just like kind of a, the hospital setting where two, uh, different doctors disagree, uh, or one person wants to do something more uh, more alternative. Yeah. It's interesting. I I can't really use my own residency as an experience because integrative philosophies, certainly functional medicine philosophies just weren't there. I was, I was very much just fuel taking in what they were telling me and, and utilizing that. I think I always had inklings of a big picture because that's kind of the way my brain looks at, you know, problems from a big picture standpoint, but certainly anything specific, it it wasn't on the radar. But I, I think as I think about it now, there's, there's aspects of, of integrative care that I guess I would say the mainstream world doesn't necessarily utilize it, but they, they, they kind of talk about it as if it's still part of their world and this might be a lot of more the lifestyle medicine side of things Mm -hmm. so i think if you ask any kind of mainstream physician um they'll talk about the importance of nutrition or or fitness or or sleep or things of that nature and these are the cornerstones of of good integrative care i think they're often overlooked when it comes to actually putting the plan in place um but i don't think you're going to get someone say, no, we, we, sh- we shouldn't talk to them at all about what they eat or how well they sure. sleep. So yeah. I think that's a place you get to start as opposed to starting with the, the most kind of maybe out there, you know, integrative technique or tool. Right, I think right. you, you start with the, with the core. And I think some of that is also your time with the patient. You know, you especially as an intern, you have a lot of one-on-one time with, with the patient and certainly still as a, as a resident. And, and so that can be also just directly with the patient. Hey, here's what we're doing. This is what we need to do now to keep you safe, keep you out of the hospital, get you home, but remind them that they got to this point because of a lot of root causes that were not being addressed. And so I think you can bring in the root cause aspect definitely from the patient side of thing. And then some of it is educating the team. You can still discuss root cause in the context of, of kind of prescribing the standard of care. Um, Or you can even always mention, here's the standard of care, but here's another way I think we could approach it um, or talk about options with that patient. Maybe we're still going to go with the standard of care, but at least continuing to bring those, um, other ways of thinking into the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I like, I really related to what you said is just start slow with it. You know, I mean, you, if you even, I'm not Mr. Way out there with a bunch of integrative ideas at the moment anyway. So it's like, I want to talk about those basics core. Cause I mean, I feel like that is what we need to be talking about anyway, as, as you know, a bigger medical industry, um, is the, the, the hot topics, you know, nutrition, 
exercise, movement, sleep, community, stress, all the, the four pillars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and again, a lot of it is just it being part of the conversation. And again, things are different when you're in the hospital. Again, that's acute care that, that should be approached differently than when you're seeing patients in the clinic, uh, or, or, or when you're talking more to the chronic phase of stuff. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it is just keeping it part of the conversation, keeping it in everyone's, in everyone's mindset. So, um, it'd be interesting. I'll, I'll be curious to two years from now to hear what that experience has been like. Um, last thing about residency, just, you mentioned your interest in, in adolescent mental health, uh, you know, you know, traditional young peds, maybe not your top in interest. Um, are there specific, uh, areas that either, you know, is a regular at Swedish that you really want to get your hands on immediately or some, some very specific skill or, or condition that you're, you're kind of most excited about? Hmm. Um, you know, I think it's mostly just the, the, the biggest scourges to, um, you know, health in America. I think it's cardiology, like you mentioned, is like the most important aspect of, of medicine because, uh, it's, uh, you know, heart disease is a, the biggest killer, um, and cause of not just mortality, but morbidity as well. And, uh, so, you know, I want to the things I'm excited about are the things that are, you know, most important in American health or just the, you know, modern, modern, uh, world health and wellness and medicine, heart disease, metabolic health, cancer prevention that, you know, just the, the, which I feel like are the basics, but, uh, that's, uh, what I'm most interested in and, and, uh, you know, helping people, live longer and better and healthier and enjoy their time uh while while we have it on earth yeah well that's awesome there there's a couple final things i want to ask one because you've asked i think almost every guest uh this question about the healthcare system i mean you've, you've obviously begun to experience it as a practitioner possibly as a patient or through a loved one um you know, again, we're not solving the healthcare system right now, but are there, are there things stand out where you say, Hey, this is working really well, or this is clearly not, or, or kind of, how do you feel about the system at this point in your, your medical career? And and how do you feel you kind of, how do you feel you want to expand that knowledge or as you go through residency or how do you think the bigger healthcare system is going to play? Yeah, I definitely don't have any. Be- I feel like I don't have any better insight into what we need to do to act, uh, what we could and should and and uh, you know might be doing to actually solve or make a better healthcare uh, industry in America. Even though I, you know I ask uh, every podcast guest that, but also I ask other people uh, that as well. And God, I just don't feel any closer to having a good answer for that, which is kind of sad. But I also, I'm, you know, I'm, I think about, um, I'm thinking about that less and less as it just gets more like futile. I feel like 
uh, in terms of making big changes politically. I feel like I have been discouraged to think about <laughs> the, uh, any possible uh, ideas. <laughs> Yeah. So, so that's, you know, that bums me out. Um, sorry, what else are we talking about? Um, well, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, yeah. <laughs> anybody who's paying attention should be yeah. frustrated by it because you, you have an area where almost every stakeholder in the healthcare system is unhappy with it, with maybe the exception of a few CEOs and, and, and shareholders. Right. Um, and again, you're still your primary job is to learn how to work with patients and then figure out how to either do that within the system or change it or leave it or, mm -hmm. or, or things of that nature. Um, are there things you already have a sense of what you might be able to do in residency to learn more? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, I think, um, yeah, more interactions you have with different people in, you know, in the industry, the better. So more, you know, consulting specialists, but and getting their input on, you know, a specific thing that you're dealing with with the patient, but also, you know, if you can talk to them more generally about their approach to this patient or their approach to this type of disease, then I like doing that. And I think I, I um, benefit from that uh, type of conversation and and kind of all that is to say kind of answering a, a question that you just posed of like what do you think works within the healthcare system i think it's relationships um you know the relationship that somebody has with their therapist or their primary care doc or their you know pulmonologist or whatever specialist that they have whatever uh you know the more that they actually like that person, uh, respect their opinion, um, that sort of thing. Um, or from specialist to specialist or primary care doctor specialist, the more that like the relationships are strong, then I think that the better it all works. Um, you know, and that's not really an industry thing. That's not really a element of anything unique to medicine either, you know? So, that's the, I would probably say the same about business or about retail or about, you know, uh, um, plumbing or anything, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's all kind of what we're doing here is interacting with each other, trying to, trying to help each other in whatever issue it is, whether, you know, obviously plumbing, the issue is pipes and, and medicine, the issue could be a lot of different things, yeah. but pipes potentially <laughs> possibly pipes. <laughs> The, but I think you hit on a good point that it is about relationships, not and and talking to other people. You know, you're going to have experience where you you hopefully will learn w things where the system is helped or where the system is is broken. And and as I always think, root cause. When someone's say coming in the hospital, you're seeing them in clinic. In addition to the root causes, you know, their nutrition or their genetics or whatever their root causes of their poor, poor health is. Uh, including what, what are the root causes? Where's the system helping or hurting? And yeah. you may not be able to fix that problem. Just like there's root causes you sometimes can't fix as a physician, even when they're medical because of life situations or other, but yeah. you get to, you get to learn them and at least you're identifying them. And after three years of seeing patient after patient, you're going to be like, Oh, these are the three root causes of the system that keeps getting in my way or keeps getting in this patient's way. Yeah, that's and, a good point. And so really, 
so much as just acknowledging when it, where the problems are, you might not have a solution for that or might, might not be part of your treatment plan. Right. But yeah, like you said, identifying the, those elements of reality that just help you form better plans to help people. If you can identify the obstacles. Yeah. yeah. And while we're on the system, the part of the system that you have the most experience with, which is medical school, mm-hmm. um, if you had your magic wand, are there things you would, with, from day one, change about medical school and, and at least the first four years of medical training? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, um, getting more clinical experience peppered into the, the first two years would be really valuable. Like I mentioned uh, earlier, that story about having my first uh, inpatient rotation um, and then, you know, feeling like I didn't know anything. I was like, what, it's the difference between this fluid and that fluid. I don't know. It wasn't something I was meant to study for step one. So why would I know that? You know, but I think that, uh, one having step one be pass fail is really nice. Now, um, that wasn't true for me, but it's true heading forward in that. Um, so step one's pass fail. So the pressure is off or at least largely off of that one test that you take at the end of your second year. So therefore I think that it should be uh, incumbent on med schools to then now spend more time with giving some more practical real life um, knowledge and, um, you know, teaching because not that you're not going to want to ace step one, but, there's just a little bit more wiggle room to doesn't really matter what your score is as long as you pass it. So you might as well spend some time learning what to do with patients and what's the difference between going this route when evaluating, a, you know, admitting a patient for something cardiac or going this route or, you know, a different route. Um, just the basics of that would be nice. So you don't feel <laughs> like, like totally lost. And, um, and I think some schools are doing that. I know CU is doing like experimenting with a longitudinal curriculum now where there are, I think, medical rotations during first and second year. Um, and so it's kind of like a back and forth classroom rotation model. I don't know everything about it, but I did run into somebody who was doing that um, just last year. Um, so I think they're implementing that. CU is... Uh, you know, in, in the future, starting now, um, for all the students. And I think it's a good way to go. Yeah. Um, Interesting. That's well, certainly medical students have been clamoring for that for a, a very long time. It yeah. sounds like people are starting coach. to listen yeah. and well, and, and making the boards pass fail is huge. I didn't realize that. And, Just step one. Yeah. Well, to start because the goal is to have a certain amount of knowledge, factual knowledge, and mm-hmm. passing a test is enough to, to say you've had that knowledge. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that aren't being taught in medical school. And the main excuse, so to speak, or the main reason I've heard from faculty is that, well, it's not on the test, we're not going to teach it. Right. And hopefully yeah, this might give them some leeway. Yeah. I think also some uh, schools do like kind of case-based learning. I think that would be valuable or at least implementing that within the curriculum of just, you know, the standard, uh, however, uh, you know, schools have been doing it. 
Um, I think that it would be valuable. Any, anything that's like kind of more real life, um, stuff and, you know, talking about patience and talking about what you would do in this situation is good stuff. I think that's good to start thinking about and, uh, and, you know, working your way through those problems for sure. I got just a couple more and, to to yeah. give you a break, let's go lightning round. Yeah. But basically, can you give an example of a of a like a resident that specifically, you know, you want to emulate or not necessarily the whole person, but something they did that you really want to emulate uh, when you're at that stage working with a med student? Uh, working with a med student or uh, or just yeah. working with a patient. I mean, something you saw, you mentioned this one attending who took you beside about the history taking, but something where you say, hey, I saw this resident. I want to be like that resident, at least in that situation, not necessarily across the board. Yeah. I mean, really, I, I had really good experiences with all of them. I, you know, I couldn't, I, I don't know if I could really single any one of them out because, uh, I think that there it was, I didn't have a, any real horror stories. Um, and everyone was pretty kind to me and I was really pleasantly surprised at how much everyone like took time out of their busy busyness to you know guide me and teach me on things or just include me on things and the whole you know um experience with the med student really everyone was great and personable um almost 100 percent of them so it was like you know i couldn't really ask for better experiences so far um, which makes me just think that that's kind of, you know, I don't know. That's what the, at least the places that I have chosen to, uh, you know, pursue in terms of residency programs, that's the type of people that they select. So I think I'm in, you know, a, a good environment, um, because everybody else has been great. So that's just the culture of, of places, uh, you know, maybe not everywhere. Um, but at least, uh, my experience good culture i feel like i'm in good hands sorry this is not lightning round that's great but that's good to hear that's exciting if you could think of what's one or two things that surprised you the most about the last four years maybe yourself the school the system others one or two things that surprised me the most well i hate saying what's the most that's one of my pet peeve questions what's your favorite or what's the best yeah I, i don't so i'll say at least one or two or something surprising um interesting i i don't know i everything (laughs) i i wasn't that surprised like i mentioned i wasn't very surprised with um you know not enjoying surgery um same with obstetrics i was like i bet i'll kind of tolerate it but it's not gonna be my favorite that was exactly true I guess uh, GI stuff, I, I think I, in terms of something that I took uh, more of a liking to than maybe I thought, maybe as I had a good rotation on, uh, GI. Okay. That makes <laughs> sense. What, uh, is there anything you can think of that's likely going to be part of your kind of day-to-day life? Um, that's not part of medicine right now in a few years, you know, some type of technology or some type of way of thinking or 
um, something that you think feels on the horizon, but it's just not there yet, but you think it's going to be part of your practice in five years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I bet like two years ago, I could have said telehealth or something, but that's, that is like very much now it's the, here. the, uh, the norm almost, uh, or very much, uh, present. So that's a good thing. I remember talking to some, uh, somebody in the rural setting about, um, uh, like telecardiology and, and this sort of thing. So I, I think um, probably the, the all in all ways, the telemedicine thing is going to blow up even more than it has blown up and not just chatting face to face with your primary doc or whatever doc, um, but sending your labs to, or I, I should say, uh, you know, your EKG mm-hmm. or, um, you know, maybe even having the EKG get read from your, your watch, um, and, and not even getting an EKG, you know, a 12 lead type thing. Actually a funny story. Um, a family member of mine was having some like heart palpitations or chest pain. I, I forget exactly what the whole story was, but they couldn't find an emergency room wherever they were. Uh, we'll skip, we'll skip over that part. But, uh, went to the Apple store, got an Apple watch, downloaded the whatever cardiology app, and then sent that to their cardiologist friend. Uh, and then they, you know, got, got the interpretation that way and then returned the watch, I believe. Uh, so, you know, that sort of stuff is, uh, it's real and people use it for that way, you know, in that uh, purpose. So I, I, Bet it's one way to do we're it. We're all going to have a, a 12 lead, you know, yeah. in our back pocket at all times. Okay. Well, I think this person at least identified one gap in the healthcare system that <laughs> needs to be rectified. <laughs> sure. All right. Final question. And this answer we will not hold you to in any way, shape, or form. Oh, boy. What do you think your week's going to look like five years from now? That is a great question. Uh, the old five years from now question. Um, I think that you know I, I actually was just thinking about this the other day i was like okay all sorts of great um mentors of mine and influences of mine yourself included a lot of people we've had on the podcast that have come up today have gone to work for themselves and started up a small clinic uh in some way or a small practice i should say um and that sounds really appealing, and that was kind of been the vision for a while. But then I was thinking about, you know, a couple episodes ago, Dr. Seafeld talking about her initial uh, couple years in medicine being in the corporate medicine world and how she didn't, uh, you know, she, she had to learn to hate it, basically, or she developed uh, a need to get out of it because she actually experienced, you know, many different ways in which it wasn't working for her, her patients and, and just the whole system. So I was thinking, I was like, what if I did commit to a couple of years in, you know, working for the man or, you know, working for evil corporate medicine and then have a, you know, more of a reason to work for myself or, you know, branch off or, go direct primary care or whatever way, but I don't know um, if that's going to be sound appealing at the time, but 
uh, I bet it will in some ways is have a salary and you know, that's why people do that is because it is appealing in some ways. But, um, I will say this, man, I'm bad at lightning round, huh? Not, not, uh, attacking these questions very quickly. I think that, uh, I would like to, uh, open up, uh, you know, my own small in-person clinic. I don't really feel like I want to be fully telehealth, although, like we said, probably going to be more uh, of an important aspect of primary care going forward. Um, and in terms of a week, that's a good question because I like the way you phrase that because it makes me think of like how do I want to structure my days? Um, but I imagine at least a handful of days, three, four in clinic, treating patients in, in the primary care setting, hopefully in a more, you know, holistic and non-corporate way than say the standard American doctor that I like to hypothetically refer to. Um, well, that's all I got. I don't know. I'd like to have some volunteer projects, but I don't have anything specific. So I'd like to dedicate, you know, at least some weekly time to, uh, community or volunteering. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's, you don't have to, like I said, you don't have to, you don't have to have a plan yet, but it's interesting to know where you think you'll be. And, and like I said, three, four five years from now, you, you get to see, um, you know, what's changed and, and what's changed in medicine, what's changed in your life and what's changed in, in how you want to work with. Patients. Yeah, no, I do appreciate the question. That was the hardest question of the day. Um, and you know, I, I don't know, so seeing people who do it for themselves, pave their own path, do the specific things they want to do in medicine and without doing a lot that they don't want to do. Not that there's, you know, not that people, do only what they want to do and they have nothing that they don't, you know, prefer doing, but, uh, you know, focusing on the things that make them happy and, and their place in medicine. I, I love that. And I want to be a part of that. So I think, uh, I think, uh, I'll be pursuing exactly that, but you know, I don't know if it's going to just from residency into that but i know you gave me a two-year cushion there in your question so exactly and nothing ever works exactly the way you think it is but having a path certainly is helpful so we're excited to uh hear the next uh few chapters for sure yeah thank you so much for uh interviewing me i sometimes like talking about myself but oftentimes i don't and i like uh, asking uh i like asking the questions so i uh, always like to hang out with you for a couple hours so appreciate it well absolutely appreciate you letting me do this i'm glad i got to learn more and, and i know your listeners uh, are appreciative to hearing more about your story and i know they're appreciative that you're going to attempt to continue this awesome yep we'll keep it going at least at least for a, a couple of episodes uh and then uh you know if you don't hear from me send me an email all right thanks a lot bye Baby, I could barely make it through that marathon of a doozy of a beast of a podcast.
I encourage you all to check out past episodes. They need some love, too, and they're also not as long. Also, stay tuned for future episodes. Also, not going to be as long. Uh, Got some cool ones lined up for you about obstetrics, also about LGBTQ healthcare and hormone therapy, and those are both listener suggestions and listener connections, or I guess set up through listener connections. So please keep up the good work, PCP listeners. Check the podcast out on Instagram at Primary Care Podcast, and also you can email the primary care podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Much love to everybody. Thanks a lot. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. That just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Pizzazz. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the story's well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job Now it's showing up I'm sleep deprived I'm misaligned My appetite is primed To feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you Lovely and smooth You quickly removed My modern man's blues I wanna celebrate Every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming And I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow Into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? was younger i met god and i hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold body mind and soul i'm forever gonna grow into something we don't know the uterus was my universe the uterus was my universe
All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. No doctor patient relationship is formed. So let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby,